One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Francis Dernley, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, as ever, we discuss the very latest updates from the front lines of the war in Ukraine and the significant diplomatic developments of the past 24 hours. We also interview Elena Chekrizova, an entrepreneur and English teacher from Ukraine who currently volunteers in a military camp teaching English to Ukrainian soldiers. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting from the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 21st of July, day 148. And today, I'm joined by Joe Barnes, our Brussels correspondent, and Verity Bowman, from the Foreign Desk. And just a quick note before we begin, I know that quite a few listeners have been bombarding our poor producers, asking, where is Dominic Nichols, the Telegraph's defence and security editor? Well, never fear, he's on annual leave and will be back on Monday in what promises to be a very significant week for the podcast. So do stay tuned for that. But first, I started by asking Verity about Russian attacks on Kharkiv. Russian artillery strikes are pounding Ukraine's second largest city and this is coming after Russia announced it was expanding its war aims. So Kharkiv's regional governor said that two people were killed and 19 were injured and four of these people are in a serious condition. One of them was a child. So I understand there's been also some shellings of of, of a bus stop and a nearby mosque. Uh, Witnesses are saying that the shells landed as civilians were getting off a bus. Just sort of paint a picture of some of the other things that have been taking place there. So yesterday what we saw was a really heartbreaking photo of a father holding his dead son's hand shortly after the strike. And this boy was 13-year-old Dimitro and he was the latest victim of the constant shelling. And we have a little bit more about him online if you go to our World News homepage. So you can read more there. Thank you, Verity. And uh, in terms of there's a huge power plant that I understand is also involved in activity today. Could you just fill us in on that as well, please? Yeah. So what we're also seeing is Russian forces closing in on what is Ukraine's second biggest power plant at Volohiska. This is about 31 miles northeast of Donetsk. So earlier, the MOD tweeted that Russia is prioritising the capture of national critical infrastructure. And we know from the past that this includes power plants. We saw this earlier in the war with the Zaporizhia power plant, which I'll touch again more shortly. So the Ministry 
added that Russia is probably attempting to break through as part of its effort to regain momentum in the southern area as it's advancing towards Krematorsk and Slovyansk. And the assault is part of a wider tactic of small-scale assaults all the way along the Donbass front line. Thank you, Verity. And I understand as well that there are the UK has committed to send thousands of more weapons to Kiev. Um, what's happening in this space in terms of munitions being sent to the Ukrainian cause? So it's the latest on Western weapon supplies and Britain will be sending scores of artillery guns and they're going to be sending more than 1,600 anti-tank weapons. The package is going to include 50,000 artillery shells. These will be coming over the coming weeks, um, Defence Secretary Ben Wallace announced earlier today. We also saw Boris Johnson last month promise another $1 billion in military support for the war effort. This latest uplift comes a day after Vladimir Putin's foreign secretary warned that Russia would expand its troop further west if the West continued to supply weapons. It looks like the bulk of Russia's troops are quite bogged down because of fierce Ukrainian resistance. And what we know is that these weapons are making a huge difference. Thanks, Verity. And yes, um, to our regular listeners who may not have had a chance to listen to yesterday's episode, we talked quite in, in detail about the comments of Sergei Lavrov and his desire to seemingly expand the war into uh, deeper into Ukraine further than just the east. Joe, um, if I could just bring you in here. Um, Perhaps the biggest story of today is about the the switching back on of Nord Stream 1, but not all is quite as it seems. So perhaps you could fill us in on this. OK, so the, the Nord Stream 1 pipeline is basically Europe's tap when it comes to the supply of Russian gas. It runs from Russia to Germany underneath the, uh, the Baltic Sea. And the majority of, say, Germany receives 60% of its supply of Russian gas through this pipeline. So it's a really kind of big deal when it comes to keeping the continent kind of heated, factories open, the lights turned on. And in the recent days, the kind of air conditioning units are blasting out at full power. But 10 days ago, Gazprom, the Russian state-controlled energy giant that controls the pipeline, announced that it would be shut for 10 days because it was going to be uh, refurbished. Um, it was going to be, it was a maintenance period, a scheduled maintenance period. But today, despite kind of numerous fears that the pipeline wouldn't come back online, at 4am today, it started, uh, say, pumping gas through into Europe. But what this has exposed and continues to expose is Europe's reliance on Russian gas and fears that Vladimir Putin could simply turn off the taps and leave the continent in quite a pickle when it comes to winter. So yesterday, the European Commission announced it's kind of, let's prepare for a, a winter without Russian gas. So it started with Ursula von der Leyen suggesting that EU member states, so the 27 member states, should come up with their own plans to cut gas consumption by a 15% between August and March next year. But there was kind of this really, and it's what's now turned out to be disputed kind of clause in her plan that would allow the Commission, so the EU's executive body here in Brussels, to make those recommendations for, for gas cuts mandatory. And that has kind of really kicked up a stink today. So we're, we're, we're working on a 
on a story about how Germany, France, the Netherlands, Ireland, Portugal, Spain, uh, and a host of other EU countries have all said publicly and privately that they just can't they can't live with the plan as it is. Um, and their, their, their argument is that this is kind of an overreach, it's European Commission creep, it's kind of a massive power grab. And who is it for a kind of bureaucrat in Brussels to say to the government in Poland, in in Portugal, um, in where in Paris, even in, in Germany, in the Netherlands, that you we should dictate how you handle energy security. Um, and so that's going to that's going to be something to really look at in the, in the kind of coming days, because the, the European Commission are keen to get this signed off by next week when there's an emergency meeting of European energy ministers. Um, and so, but I think what this highlights is again is just the utter reliance um, and kind of poor planning, kind of post 20, uh, 2014 when Russia annexed Crimea, of just continuing to do everyday business with Moscow and the reliance on energy supplies from Moscow. Um, and now they know they're at the whim of Vladimir Putin. He's got them dancing to his tune, essentially. They will. Like he wants to and will squeeze kind of the energy supply purely to kind of in re- retaliation for these Western sanctions on Moscow. But he knows that he could comfortably kind of make, uh, bring us a winter of discontent here in Europe by turning off the taps and forcing a COVID style shutdown of industry where people might be forced to work from home. They They will have to choose between kind of Lighting, lighting their homes or heating their homes in the in the dark winter months. It's it's a real conundrum that they've got uh, that Europe has has got itself into and needs to get itself out of. Thanks, Joe. Yes, and as we spoke about on the podcast last week, some of the ramifications for Germany in particular are incredibly significant. I mean, really shocking. Six million jobs at risk. Talking about the government telling people to share showers and baths and having huge ramifications for its car industry, for instance. I've just got a couple of questions on this briefly. I just my my first comment is with regard to this being enforced on all of the member states of the European Union, regardless of their reliance on Russian oil and gas. That seems rather unfair, doesn't it? I mean, considering the fact that there are some countries that are far more reliant, such as Germany and others that are less so, why should everybody be paying the cost? Is that one of the conversations that's currently taking place as part of this? Uh, Yes, absolutely is. And it's uh, people are saying it publicly. So, um, Spain's energy minister, and let me just grab the quote uh, yesterday, said, unlike other countries, we Spaniards have not lived beyond our means from an energy point of view. And so Spain gets most of its kind of natural gas supplies from America, doesn't rely on Russia that much. So that is a clear kind of like dig at the, at the Germans, the Italians, these countries that kind of thrive off of and have thrived off of Russian gas for years. I was speaking to a Polish official uh, this morning, and they came up with a similar kind of idea. Um, They basically said, look, while we're happy um, to coordinate in the spirit of solidarity, um, and the EU is like vital for this, they're saying that the EU's plan cannot be used as a tool for mutualising the consequences of prolonged systematic over-dependence of some countries on Russian gas and the lack of investment in diversification. 
that is kind of a clear, clear, clear dig at the likes of Germany, the likes of Italy. And so we know earlier this year, Poland was one of the first countries to be kind of cut off from supplies of Russian gas because it refused to pay for its gas in rubles as decreed by Russian President uh, Vladimir Putin. So, and then, and then Poland is one of these kind of hardline countries when it comes to sticking up to Russia. So they they they're going to be no strangers in kind of saying it how it is and saying why should we pay the cost when we are saying energy security is a national competence. It's it's up to the government to decide how we heat our homes and how we kind of keep factories open. Why should and why should we have to pay the price? when it's clearly other countries that are to blame for this. Thanks, Joe. And, and how exactly would the European Union enforce this? I mean, is there any detail yet on it, on what would happen if a country were to say, well, no, I refuse to uh, conform to this 15% cut? Uh, and uh, is there a sense that this would be, would it be fines or would it just be political condemnation? So it'd be a little bit of both. So basically how the plan looks in the EU Commission's eyes at the moment is from August until March, they, it's a voluntary reduction of 15% in gas consumption. They hope that everyone is going to work together to reduce this. But then they do have this kind of mechanism, this lever they can pull, and it's called invoking, in, a, in quotations, an EU alert if there is a substantial risk of significant deterioration in supplies that comes this winter. And that will then make it mandatory. And if a EU country is found to be in breach of this, they will be dragged in front of the European Courts of Justice in um, Luxembourg. And that could, as you said, result in fines, political condemnation. Um, it could result in the EU not dispersing budget payments to these these certain countries that uh, maybe won't be obliging. Um, and it would... It, it, for the EU, it's... Um, we always talk about this idea of Western unity and that very much applies to the EU. And so it's kind of, it's, it needs to show that it's unified in its approach against Russia when it comes to dealing with potential threats of gas turnoffs. But it knows that by kind of publishing these plans, that it's probably gone too soon without coordinating amongst the member states. That it, Vladimir Putin uh, and his energy kind of czars in in the Kremlin must be kind of laughing. They, they they really do have the EU kind of dancing and panicking to, to Moscow's tune. And that's exactly what they kind of want at a time like this. So it, potentially it should eventually come down to, and I think a lot of politicians will maybe not say this publicly, but um, privately amongst themselves, is it's actually now time for kind of Germany to actually come to the realisation that we shouldn't be having to bail you out. And, we could look back to the financial crisis where Southern Europe um, in like 2008, so Greece was basically forced by Germany to to kind of go into massive austerity. And now it's kind of the the, the, tie, the tides are turning and Southern Europe's now saying, look, we were bullied by Germany during the financial crisis. Why can't we bully them back? It's interesting you make that that comparison because I remember that, that in era sort of very vividly. And it was quite shocking, actually, I think, for the benefit of, of, of our international leaders, particularly in America, just the degree to which there is still some very long lasting 
what's the word, I suppose, uh, memories, lingering animosity towards Germany in Europe, and not just for its contemporary policies, but also, of course, for its historic role in the 20th century with regard to World War I and World War II. And I recall that when uh, Germany was effectively forcing Greece to pay these, um, uh, to to pay or else, um, some of the rhetoric that was coming out of the Greek newspaper, the Greek popular press, was really um, strong. Um, and and I think it just plays to this idea that, uh, I mean, I'm just remembering now, I mean, some of the headlines I think was talking about, you know, uh, they tried to beat us during the war, they're trying to beat us again, this kind of narrative, having pictures of Merkel dressed up as a sort of Führer type figure. Um, but it speaks, as I say, to this constant tension within the European Union, which is the extent to which does having a central policy say on energy actually divide more than unify um, and and how uh, because of these historical tensions that lie beneath the surface that can very easily be stoked by these strong policies um, can can lead into to further tensions rather than rather than reduced ones um, uh, but let's quickly just I know we're going to come back to that later, Joe, on discussing the, uh, the the sort of situation in the European Union at present in a sort of more broader sense. Um, but just returning now to the question of weapons, Verity, I understand there's been some kamikaze drones that have struck a nuclear power plant. Can you just fill us in on that, please? Yes. So as I said earlier, going back a bit, striking key infrastructure is a key Russian tactic. And the Zaporizhia power plant has been part of this for a while. It's occupied by Putin's forces. So the latest update is that three Ukrainian kamikaze drones reportedly struck the power station. This injured a dozen employees and caused some quite powerful explosions that were heard across the city. But Russia's forces have been quick to insist everything's fine. Vladimir Rogov, who is one of the occupation officials, said that the three combat zones launched a massive strike, but that the um, reactor has not been damaged and radiation levels are normal. He did say that the estimated payload of the drones was, you know, around equivalent to seven kilos of TNT. So it's a pretty big attack. But going back, Russia's control of the Zaporizhia power plant has been an issue of international control since Russian forces seized the area early on in the war. Thanks, Verity. Um, and uh, I am conscious, Verity, that you have to go back to the very busy foreign desk. Thank you very much, as always, for your time. Joe. Obviously, here in the UK at the moment, we've got a very eventful domestic situation involving the Conservative leadership contest. And I briefly filled in listeners yesterday on what had been going on. There was a back then, uh, they say a week is a long time in politics, but at the moment, 24 hours is a long time in politics here. Um, There were only three candidates left in that competition. That was Rishi Sunak, Liz Truss, the current Foreign Secretary, and a former Defence Secretary, Penny Mordaunt. We now know who the final two are, and that will be between Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss. Now, Liz Truss, as I say, current Foreign Secretary, has made some quite interesting remarks around British troops in Ukraine. Could you just uh, fill us in on that, please? Yes, Liz Truss um, is uh, and will remain as probably the one of the MPs who, when it comes to rhetoric against Ukraine, that is happy to really kind of be like bombastic. And uh, she said in one of the debates the other day that while every other 
leadership contender at the time before they were all knocked out that they wouldn't negotiate or talk to Vladimir Putin that she said absolutely I would go and see Putin and I would tell him that he's in the wrong but so she was on uh, BBC Radio 4 Today program this morning um, and she said she would not support the UK sending uh, troops uh, combat forces uh, into Ukraine which is a kind of a long-standing NATO policy um, basically Western governments they don't want to give Russia a reason to start World War Three, and say, she said, we are doing all we can to support Ukraine. We've led the international coalition on sending weapons. We're putting sanctions in place, but I do not support the direct involvement of UK troops. Um, and that's, we shouldn't be shocked by that. Um, as I said, NATO governments are very cautious about what they, they do and what they think they can get away with. And they are obviously every day the war goes on, they're ramping up the support. So if you had said on February the 25th, so a day after the invasion, that we would be sending these Western HIMARS and the multi-launch rocket systems into Ukraine, you would have been, you you would have said, no, you're absolutely joking. So this is a, it's a sign that support is being ramped up. But one thing we won't get is Western troops, Western boots on the ground in Ukraine, because that would trigger or give us a trigger point for World War Three. I can totally understand that. and But I just for the benefit of our listeners who are saying, well, should you not be sort of being a little bit vaguer on these matters because it plays to Vladimir Putin's sort of strategy if uh, if if he knows already that that the UK troops will never go on the ground in Ukraine what do you think the, the the british response or arguably the western response more broadly would be to that criticism the the british the americans are operating by a kind of say it as you see it mantra when it comes to to russia so they are the constant kind of rhetoric at the start of the conflict was this is kind of the West trying to swallow up Ukraine and take it away from Russia, which Russia claims that it's Ukraine doesn't exist. It's a, it's a Russian territory that needs to be brought back into Russian control. Um, and Vladimir Putin and his kind of cronies in the Kremlin will constantly look for ways to blame the West. Lavrov, Lavrov said it himself, and I'm sure that it was covered quite comprehensively yesterday is saying the we will widen our objectives the more west the, the more the western weapons get sent to ukraine so they're constantly trying to fi- find blame the liz trust going i will not condone sending troops to the U- to ukraine is 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 just part of that fight back is just saying that look this is a war against between ukraine uh fighting the russian invasion invaders we are obviously supporting Ukraine, but it's not for us to get involved. And it, it, it comes it's a, it's a message to the Kremlin basically saying, look, you can't start launching attacks on the West. That will that will no doubt provoke kind of NATO Article 5 territory, which calls for kind of will we'll, we'll cause World War Three. But saying basically a warning to the Kremlin saying, look, you stick to Ukraine. Um, don't come any further. Thanks, Joe. And just another couple of stories I think that we should cover before perhaps having a general discussion about the state of play in the European Union generally. The first is, we just you were just talking there about resources in terms of weaponry and obviously prior to that, energy. There's obviously also this question of, of, of manpower 
And uh, there's been an interesting development about Russia requesting North Korean labourers. I'm just wondering if you can update us on that. Sure. Yeah. So Russia doesn't have that many allies around the world that it can it can reach out to. We've 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 heard stories of uh, Syrian uh, kind of soldiers being drafted in as as mercenaries to help fight alongside them. But now we've got the idea that Russia is leaning on North Korea, the kind of that despot state in Asia. The, uh, um, and it's basically saying that from North Korea, we want you to send laborers and machinery. Um, and it's in exchange for food, uh, the wheat and grain, grain shipments, but basically to help to help them kind of work and rebuild uh, the captured areas of the Donbass and, they, so this is no doubt the Kremlin's idea of using its very few international partners. Um, and say so the Russian ambassador to North Korea raised it and made the claim in an interview. It said assisting North Korea in obtaining equipment, technology or currency would be a breach of United Nations sanctions designed to stop Pyongyang developing all nuclear weapons or advanced missiles. But it's saying that actually maybe Moscow could help out North Korea in exchange for it sending people to work on rebuilding the captured territories at the moment in the Donetsk and Luhansk regions. So it's it's quite an interesting way of, and it's a, a funny way of how Ukraine has lots of allies to lean on and and kind of look for support where Russia is Russia doesn't. So it's it's now having to do kind of do deals with its fellow devils. Yes, it's telling, isn't it, that we hear this in the same week that Putin is in Iran trying to make uh, deals and, 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 and friends over there. It does appear that he's trying to show that even when supposedly completely isolated, that he still has some people that he can call on and some reliant allies. Although if you have North Korea amongst them, I think, uh, well, it says it all really, doesn't it? Um, just on this point about North Korea, I think there's an interesting discussion to be had and perhaps it's one for a for a future podcast but interested to hear your thoughts on this joe which is the extent to which north korea has in a way misled the western diplomatic community now for decades about the effectiveness of isolation and what i mean by that is you have a country in north korea that has is in theory completely and utterly diplomatically economically isolated from large parts of the world and of course, in much for much of the Cold War, that was a death sentence, um, and so uh, countries have assumed, I think, uh, that, it, that that North Korea would eventually implode. When it didn't, there was a sort of more of an acceptance of a different economic strategy, which involved deeper economic integration and dependency, um, and and also as well closer diplomatic ties with some of these countries. And of course, that extended to to Russia um, in particular, but also other sort of, I suppose you'd say, traditional foes of, 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 of the West. So I suppose what I'm asking is, is the, the extent to which North Korea has actually misled the Western community, because of course, China has been funding North Korea all along. Russia has also been funneling funds into that state. So this idea that it's completely isolated just simply isn't true. But it's been held up, I think, by some entities who have said, well, North Korea is a classic example of how isolation doesn't work. The way to change countries, the way to to, to to bring them closer to the West is by these closer diplomatic ties, by these closer economic bonds. 
But that seems to be now in the con- in, in, with, with everything that's happened in Ukraine, a rather naive approach. But are these conversations that you've had with anybody in, in, in your circles in Brussels? Uh, absolutely. Kind of uh, Cold War isolationism is, is something that I, I kind of bring up a lot with people because people have differing views on it. Um, the, there are countries in Europe that still have quite close trading relationships with Russia. Um, they have, so Germany being one example, they do lots of kind of industrial business. Uh, they've kind of lived off of cheap gas supplies, as we've spoken about earlier. Um, so there, there is genuinely debate about does isolation is it being isolating a country? Does it work? Um, and as you kind of referenced there, Francis, that North Korea, which I'm sure we can all consider a rogue state, has been propped up by other kind of what we would probably call in diplomatic circles bad actors. And um, Russia has kind of has its own channels. It's it's going to it's doing business with China. It's doing business with India. Why we wouldn't want to call them? kind of evil rogue states like we'd probably be happy to brand russia these days there's always an international community um that's willing to work together mainly because they're just not that fast and they're quite happy to kind of rake in the funds so they can dish out to their their public pots and and win elections or or kind of curry favor if you're a dictator so i completely isolating a country while it will have an effect western sanctions have kind of seen uh, it was a 256 billion dollar hit to the russian economy um but it's always been able to limp on and you can limp on while acting or dealing with fellow kind of bad actors yes it's this this age-old question isn't it of sort of interests over ideology and the extent to which certain countries see themselves operating more in terms of their own interests as opposed to ideology whereas the west has sort of traditionally been sort of slightly more ideological in theory, but arguably in practice has trespassed into thinking more in terms of economic interests with arguably, uh, in the cases we talk about Nord Stream 1, devastating results. Um, just one other story I think that we should cover, Joe, which is about Turkey and its comments with regard to Finland and Sweden compliance on NATO, um, uh, NATO ascension. Um, it, it seems that Turkey is is, is making some quite well, I suppose barbed comments on this, really. But what what's your take on it? Um, yes, the, no, it's the Turkey are once again. So now we're going through. They've Turkey have backed at the first stage Finland and Sweden joining NATO. They've signed what are called accession protocols that now need to be ratified by all NATO kind of governments. Uh, the UK signed its ratification. France has done its ratification. Belgium's done its ratification. Estonia, countless kind of countries are now like really fast tracking, bending normal conventions to get Finland and Sweden in the alliance as soon as possible. But Erdogan, um, well, it was as soon as we were we were sat watching his press conference in Madrid um, and he deliberately made himself the final leader to speak at the their summit in Madrid in June last month. And he he warned the Turkish Parliament will not ratify the accession protocols unless Sweden extradites 73 people, which Ankara says are terrorists or terror suspects, alleged alleged kind of conspirators in in a, in a coup a few years ago, a coup attempt there a few years ago. And um, so what we have now is, and they're not new comments, we've got Turkey saying, oh, we're going to assess Finland and Sweden's promise that they're going to be tougher on terror because one of the reasons that Turkey wasn't originally happy with 
Finland and Sweden, Sweden especially, uh, it, it accused Sweden of being relaxed when it comes to Kurdish militia groups, including the, the PKK, um, and basically Turkey was happy to use the accusation that Sweden had been a kind of a safe haven for outlawed Kurdish Kurdish militants. So now to get over that veto, they agreed a kind of a memorandum of understanding which promised Finland and Sweden to crack down and be tough on terror and Islamic terror especially. And now Turkey are kind of being all bombastic and kind of hardline, proving to be really tough negotiators as they as they always are known in NATO circles. And they're saying that we're going to get a new permanent committee that would meet Swedish and Finnish officials to basically assess their promises. Are they keeping to their, their promised uh, promises to get into NATO? And um, Erdogan keeps on using uh, things saying, we're going to freeze your membership if you don't meet these promises. We'll veto it once more. The Turkish parliament won't ratify it. We're basically in kind of holding circles. And um, there, there are obviously lots of rumours, uh, for instance. One of the rumours is that Erdogan is kind of waiting for the Americans to let Turkey back into the F-35 fighter jet program or to sell sell Turkey some F-16 fighter jets. So there's lots of kind of ideas that are flying around in Brussels and other NATO capitals about what at what point will Turkey drop its newfound opposition uh, to ratification. Well, thank you, Joe. Fascinating to hear your insights on that. And just whilst we're on the subject of of, of your insights. It's an important job being based in the city, the headquarters, the European Union. We spoke a couple of weeks ago about you being sanctioned by Russia due to your work for us as Brussels correspondent. Just for the benefit of our listeners, before we have a general conversation about the state of play in the European Union, what exactly does your daily life entail in Brussels? Um, so, yeah, you, 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 you're, you're, you're right. It's it's an important job in, in regard to Brussels is not only home to the European Union, it's home to NATO. So it's basically one of the big diplomatic capitals of not just Europe, of, of the world. So it's, it's there's there's some there's more kind of embassies and international missions in Brussels than kind of anywhere else in the world. I think uh, New York might might have that crown, but Brussels certainly is kind of if you need a visa uh, to travel to a well North Korea, for instance. Brussels is one of the great places to get it because it has the most embassies and uh, international embassies and stuff like that. But so what's fascinating being in Brussels is you have a countless supply of kind of diplomats, officials, insiders who are really close to these international, big international decisions being made. And you can use all the cliches about kind of walking through the corridors of power, but mostly uh, kind of they're done in coffee shops and restaurants, uh, these having conversations. Um, So that's one of the fascinating things is um, you're just you're just close to so much of these big decision decisions being made. So, for instance, I I, I can speak to I can the, the European Commission announces something, and I know I can get on the phone or go to like local coffee shops, and you are guaranteed to bump into a, a member state diplomat who can say, "Oh, this is what's really going on. This is the the story." And that's I think important for our our readers, our listeners, that we can go we can dive beyond the headlines that NATO and the European Union and the G7, G20 and other foreign governments want you to want you to see, want you to read, want you to hear. You can dive behind and really get to the meaning of what's actually going on. 
It's really interesting. Uh, I can imagine that you walking down the street can be a sort of slightly stressful experience because you just never know who you're going to bump into. Um, just let's talk then generally about the current state of play for the Euro- European Union. I mean, obviously, it's been a, if you're taking the long view, a, a very eventful six or seven years since the, of course, migration crisis of 2015. Then that was followed by Brexit and the years of, of chaos around that. Um, obviously, now Britain has completely left, but is still has close connections inevitably with our nearest neighbour. What's the mood there generally? I mean, is this a feeling in contrast of Ukraine that this is an opportunity for the European Union to show its worth? Does it feel that it's doing things effectively? Or do you still get a sense of sort of disarray and and denial about perhaps how challenging and precarious situation the European Union is actually in at present? So, yeah, you're, you're, you're right on that. And um, I've been a Brussels correspondent since 2018. And so I came out here and at the height of height of the Brexit withdrawal negotiations, uh, so I've I've basically seen in my four and a half years here the EU lurch from crisis to crisis, from Brexit to COVID to uh, now now to Ukraine. So it's it's it really does show a crisis shows whether a government or international organisation can function at a higher a higher standard. And 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 to its credit. Um, the EU has done relatively well when it comes to uh, kind of Ukraine. It's it's now come up with two and a half million euros worth of funding for weapons, and that that was a kind of an unprecedented kind of step that the EU took to decide that it was going to start using uh, money money from its budgets to fund kind of Ukraine's armed forces and buy them everything from kind of helmets to guns to to kind of the artillery systems that we've seen delivered now. Um, the sanctions, uh, I, you, you speak to UK officials here in Brussels, and they will be the first to admit that we've had to work really closely with the EU, um, and as we have done with the US and other other kind of international kind of organisations in the G7 and stuff like that, because Western sanctions wouldn't work unless everyone's on board. And Britain's economy, while it is one of the biggest in in the world, you wouldn't it wouldn't have the same effect if we were going completely alone on sanctions and the eu wasn't following but what what it has exposed is um each the eu is only as strong as its kind of strongest part and when you get a weak a kind of a, a kink in the armor a chink in the armor um so for instance hungary has been unwilling to kind of go that much further on on sanctions uh, Germany and the kind of energy reliance, you, you you start to see how kind of the project would start to soon kind of descend into chaos if if not everyone is on board and aligned with the same kind of common goals. Yes, and I think that it, on this policy you were describing earlier on around energy, we're going to see even more of those fault lines um come into come into the fore and i suppose this is the great question isn't it to the extent to which how has how to what extent has the european shown its worth with these crises to the peoples of europe i mean when brexit took place there was a real sense that perhaps this could precipitate a real 
sort of decline within the European Union in the sense of that there might be other countries that would follow. That hasn't happened. Um, but it's it still seems an open question to me, at least, uh, of the extent to which the EU has has handled these these questions as effectively as perhaps uh, as it could have. I mean, obviously, the, the, the migration crisis in 2015 was, I think, a, a perfect example of a mishandling which which sowed quite significant discord within the European Union and certain member states within that. I think you could argue that COVID, to an extent, having a, 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 a policy that initiated lockdowns, in some cases one might, well, might argue too fast, in some cases for too long, obviously some would argue too slowly. Um, obviously, whilst they were being made on national bases, the European Union still had a stance on that. And that arguably, depending on what one's view of lockdowns is, was either effective or not. Of course, the vaccination programme was another example of where certain countries like Britain were perhaps able to get ahead of the game because inevitably when you have a big enterprise like such as the European Union, it can lead to a slower ability to adapt to fast changing circumstances. And indeed, one could make probably the same criticism around Ukraine, as I have on this podcast, several times making the point that if we had relied solely or if Ukraine had relied solely, should I say on the European Union having a coherent front on this, then it may well have been too slow in order to get the weapons to it in time. Um, obviously, Britain and America got weapons there first, and it may well have precipitated the the collapse or premature collapse, at least of of of, of Kiev, perhaps even Zelensky's capture or death. And so we and we don't know what would have happened as a consequence of that. So um Obviously, all of these are open are open questions, but it's interesting gauging the sense that you feel that in Europe at the moment, at least amongst the or Brussels, should I say, being specific, that amongst officials, they feel that they've handled this crisis well, because it would be be interesting to see whether that feeling is shared entirely in in Ukraine. I think. The, the, it's a really important point to kind of highlight when you said that Britain and America got their first with weapons, and indeed it was kind of massive. We were sending weapons before the war, um, but actually that wasn't really the EU's job at that point. Um, the EU kind of took it upon itself to start funding weapons, um, but this is that's a me- military is a member state competence. But I think actually, rather than the criticism being levelled at the EU in this one, we should look at. Uh, France, uh, for instance, who basically didn't quite believe the intelligence um, and Emmanuel Macron eventually sacked his intelligence chief on this basis because they basically said, um, we still think an, a, an invasion is if, not when, when Britain and America are saying, no, the invasion is when, not if. So I think actually the EU was probably um, given a bad kind of reputation on the basis of its own member states making mistakes um because the the eu is obviously only can only act in kind of the mandate uh, that is given by its by its kind of members so maybe um what but what the eu done, has done since in kind of leading on kind of making sure the economic sanctions are as strong and tight as possible uh, making sure that there are pools of money that come from the common European budgets to to for, for its member states to send weapons is actually is actually quite remarkable. Um, maybe when we're pointing fingers, it's actually not at the EU. We should be kind of when we have this kind of post-Ukraine war, when Ukraine has won the war, and we're having a kind of a look at European security. We should probably be pointing our fingers at kind of European Union member states rather than Brussels itself. 
I think that's absolutely a fair point, although I suppose playing devil's advocate slightly, one would say that this is part of the issues with the European Union is that it purports to be an entity of 27 states, but actually it's really steered by its foremost economies, most particularly Germany and France. And so if they are weak, say, on providing weaponry or slow to react for the reasons that you've just described, then the whole of the enterprise sort of falls down in the sense that you are really only relying on those two, uh, on, on, on those two, three, four most prominent economies and hoping that they have a, a coherent strategy. If they don't, then, then, then everybody is in trouble. But inevitably, this is a, a, a conversation that we've had in the past, but also one that we'll inevitably have in the future. Conscious, I'm looking at the clock and uh, we're, we're, we're running low on time for the rest of today. So, um, Joe, as ever, um, we always ask uh, for people's final thoughts. What's your final thought for our listeners today? Things perhaps they should be thinking about or something that caught your eye this week? So a story that um, Roland Oliphant, a regular contributor to our podcast here and myself working on now, is, is the idea that high-powered western fighter jets could actually soon arrive in ukraine to bolster its forces and these comments were made by uh, general charles brown who is the chief of staff of the u.s air force and he he basically revealed that washington are in talks over training ukrainian pilots and he said it was basically you can't start supplying ukraine with soviet made jets because you basically can't you can't get the spare parts from russia but he raised the prospect of u.s fighter jets the swedish made fighter jets the Eurofighter, as that which is a typhoon or the french made Raphael, um being sent and ukrainian pilots basically being trained on uh on these kind of nato standard fighter jets and so that's a, a quite a remarkable step up from because we only have to look back to march uh when um poland offered to send uh, its fleet of MiG-29s to Ukraine, America were the first people to say, no, absolutely not. That would be seen as an escalation. It could be one of these World War Three triggers. But actually, that's how far we've kind of come in this conflict now. Um, and almost, is it a sign of how much Western governments feel that they can get away with? And when, you, when you're looking at fighter jets, the tanks come next, perhaps. So I think we should actually start looking as as, as the conflict kind of rumbles on in Ukraine about kind of what kit that the West thinks is safe enough to send to Ukraine uh, as they avoiding that trigger, but will also give Ukraine the best chance of uh, dispelling uh, its Russian invaders. And so I, I, I think that the one kind of caution I have with this, and this is for me to find out, and I've got multiple calls arranged on it, so hopefully I can give you the answer later, is when will this happen? Because there's a, there's a lot of talk in the West about bringing Ukraine up to NATO standard, uh, but is that going to be is that going to be post-war, or are we going to be able to get these fighter jets, these Western fighter jets, into Ukraine while there are still Russian forces on the ground? Thanks, Joe. And now to Sophie Ko, our journalist here at the Telegraph, who a couple of days ago interviewed Elena Chekrizova an entrepreneur and English teacher from Ukraine who currently volunteers in a military camp teaching English to Ukrainian soldiers. This is their conversation. So Elena, could you start by explaining a bit about exactly who you are and where you're from in Ukraine? Well, I come from the east of Ukraine. I'm originally from Donbass region and uh, I lived in uh, Donetsk up to 2014 and then I was forced to abandon my home 
when uh, Donetsk was occupied by Russians in uh, July 2014. And uh, when the war started in February, I, uh, well, had some, you know, flashback. Uh, that's why uh, after the war started, I decided to pull myself together and uh, to invest all I can in volunteering and helping my country to defeat the aggressor. And we'll speak a lot more about the volunteering you're doing slightly later, but what did you do before the February invasion broke out in Kyiv? Yes, I am a teacher of English and a psychologist. I had an idea of developing a military English course uh, before, and I worked with soldiers eight years ago uh, during the first uh, active phase of Ukrainian uh, of, uh, of war in Ukraine. I understood that uh, Ukraine and Ukrainian soldiers are in need of uh, knowledge and uh, in need of communication with foreigners in English. So I was invited to teach English in a military camp in Ukraine for the Ukrainian Volunteer Corps. Uh, and, and for two months, I've been teaching our soldiers here at uh, their place where they're stationed. And what, when you say military English, what kind of things are you teaching them? What, what useful phrases or, or certain yeah, parts of the language is it most important to know on the battlefield? Well, our course includes everyday military vocabulary uh, for our soldiers to be able to communicate in everyday military situations, you know, giving and uh, receiving orders, different um, vocabulary, which helps them to operate foreign weapon. And uh, actually, the uh, aim of the course, it is to make them confident speakers in communication with foreign instructors, with foreign journalists, colleagues from abroad, uh, from uh, the armed forces from all over the world, because many people want to help. And uh, almost every week we welcome foreign instructors or journalists. And also the knowledge and skills in English gives them access to the manuals in English, to some literature, some military information. It's an asset for our armed forces at the moment. Do you feel that there's a really international push behind the army in Ukraine? Yes, I believe so, because currently our soldiers get weapons from abroad. Right now, uh, they are working with American instructors who arrived yesterday. Every day, our soldiers approach me and uh, ask questions about different military technologies because they read the books in English, they watch uh, videos in English. They communicate with uh, their colleagues from armies from across the world. That's why, yeah, there is, um, I believe that there is international push and now it's very obvious right now. What's the morale of these soldiers like? Are they soldiers that have been in the Ukrainian army for years? Are they people who have just stepped onto the front line? And how how are they? I know it's impossible to collate it all, but what's the atmosphere there at the moment? Well, um, I'm teaching soldiers from the Ukrainian Volunteer Corps. Uh, Some of them joined the army with the invasion in February. There are many people who have uh, military experience and uh, they fight since 2014. Actually, 
it's it's a mix of soldiers. Some of them are more experienced, some of them are less experienced, but I'm sure that all of them are really devoted, committed, and are ready to fight and protect Ukraine from Russian invaders and occupants. The morale is very high. I was really impressed by that that our troops are very well prepared, they are very disciplined, they are very organized, they are ready to learn, to acquire new skills, to study different uh, subjects such as English in line with uh, lots of military skills. And um, I can even observe and notice day after day they become more experienced. Some of them go to the front line, come back and share their experience with the newcomers. So actually it's um, it's a non-stop process of upgrading, developing and getting power in order to protect our country. And what have you learned from them? Obviously you're teaching them these important skills. What have they shown you? They have shown me this love for the country. They're real patriots and they're really unstoppable when it comes to protection, when it comes to our independence and sovereignty. They're really crazy about it in a positive sense, in the most positive sense of this word. They are ready to sacrifice their lives because they feel um, they feel the responsibility for our country. And that really amazed, impressed me. And that is why I decided to stay here and uh, to teach these people, to help them become uh, more sophisticated in terms of English. What's your most memorable moment running the course so far? Uh, there are many memorable moments. Uh, uh, there are funny moments and there are sad moments because it's war. I'm teaching during the wartime and anything might happen to my students. But there are plenty of funny things. For example, they are, as I said, they're very disciplined and organized. But sometimes there are orders and other duties and other trainings. And when they come to the classroom uh, wearing their bulletproof vest and their helmets with their weapon because they didn't have a spare moment just to leave it in the barrack, uh, they're in a hurry not to be late for their English lesson, it really shows their level of motivation. Must be a bit of a shock for you if they turn up in the classroom with a um, not really, not not really, because I I see them every day in their full gear. They have very tight schedule, and uh, by the way, it's another thing that impressed me. They have very little rest. And they have plenty of things to do during the day. Uh, there are some combat trainings, weapon trainings, drills, marshes, and uh, plenty of other things. And they can combine it with uh, their English lessons. They do their home task and help each other. Uh, that's why I'm really happy with my students. And they're the most maybe motivated ones I have, uh, I have ever had. Did you say that you give them homework as well? Yes, they get uh, homework and home tasks. They do everything, uh, all the exercises, writing, grammar, vocabulary. So they're really serious about that. And you mentioned earlier that you're having foreign volunteers helping with your course, even online and remotely. 
How can people get involved in what you're doing to help these soldiers? I have a Twitter account where I share the information about my course. And uh, many volunteers emailed me uh, people from different countries who would like to contribute and do something to help Ukraine, first of all, and to help our soldiers become to, to get more knowledge. And more than 100 people emailed me only yesterday. Uh, I actually don't have time to uh, read all the emails, but I, I hope that I'll sort it out. Yeah, there are many people with military experience who can share uh, and help with the terminal with some special vocabulary of the infantry or Air Force or Navy. Uh, there are people who would like to contribute and share, uh, to contribute some money because uh, now it's a volunteer project. We don't have any uh, funding. Uh, actually, I work for free and uh, we buy books and equipment for our classroom, asking for donations from people or using or spending our own money. Also, many people send send some materials to me which they believe uh, can be useful and uh, yes, I can use some of them. I, I didn't expect such immense support that there are so many supporters of Ukraine in Britain, in, uh, in the USA, in Australia and in many European countries. Many people have Ukrainian background or have Ukrainian friends or relatives or just uh, are very compassionate. And for example, yesterday I was talking online to a British man who served in the British Army and I asked him some questions about the vocabulary and what he said is that he joined the army 40 years ago and they were trained to fight in the war against Russia and now uh, Ukraine is fighting uh, his war. That's why he feels a bit frustrated and he said that uh, he cannot do anything physically uh, but he can contribute in any other ways. And uh, I believe that it's true that each person who feels indifferent, who supports Ukraine, can contribute. There are plenty of ways how to do that. And uh, my example shows that even teaching, not a military profession at all, yet teaching English can be useful during, uh, during the wartime and can make a difference. Because I feel that I, I make a difference here. They get more knowledge and my students tell me that uh, their English is getting better, they feel more confident, and confidence is crucial during the war. That's why I'm happy with what I'm doing and can, can see the results of it. And if you had to leave our listeners with one thought today, or not thought, but a, a message on from the front lines, from these, these men and women who are risking their lives or training up to risk their lives what message would you tell our listeners um i would like to say um there are many things that i would like to say about the war about how we feel about um about our life during this time but i would like to express my gratitude because um, many people support Ukraine and support is uh, of paramount importance for us. Secondly, um, I would say if you want to change something, 
even if you are far from Ukraine, even if you have never been to Ukraine. But what's going on now in our country, it's war between civilized world and barbarians who think that they can intrude into somebody else's home and occupy somebody else's territories and uh, kill people. Now, I, I think it's time to, to unite, to unite and fight against the terrorists, Russian terrorists. Uh, and I think that each person who, who is indifferent can do something about it, even if they are far from the actual battlefield. It can be anything that helps Ukraine, Ukrainian soldiers and Ukrainian people to fight and to defeat the aggressor. Because if we don't do it now, they will move on and the whole planet, uh, the whole world is at risk. I think that seems like a very fitting note to end on unless there's anything more that you'd like to say, Elena. I would maybe invite people to my Twitter, to my Twitter account, to look at our soldiers, see how the process goes and uh, express their feelings about that. Because when our soldiers feel support and feel that Europe and uh, the United Kingdom are with us, they get inspired, they get inspired. And uh, by the way, I haven't noticed it before. Uh, there is uh, recently I launched initiative for foreigners who uh, offer their help with conversational practice. And many of our soldiers have already started their communication with the foreigners. And it really broadens the, their horizons. Uh, they become friends with people from different countries and it's another thing why I am I'm going on and uh, why, uh, why I continue my, my teaching here. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation, as ever, live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We're especially interested to hear where you're listening from around the world. And thank you to all of those who've been in touch in the past week. We've heard from Indiana in the United States, Malmo in Sweden, and even one listener in the Bering Straits near Siberia. Stay warm. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Gemma Farrell. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. 